from the very, very beginning. I think we've always seen your art. It's always been, it's always been very beautiful about a depiction of nature. It's almost your perspective of nature. So my interest is your early influences. How did you even begin in this journey? Well, I think uh, looking back on my life, I would I would say that my love for art was awakened when I was about five or six. My first memories of sitting on the veranda with my helper, and I looked at the bougainvillea flowers and saw this gorgeous purpley, pinky color, and I suddenly grabbed some and had this picture of wanting to make color from it, you know, so I straight away got some water and started pressing it, pressing it, and then I wanted her to get me some paper, and then I started, you know, painting it on the paper, but of course, you know, it didn't work out as beautiful as the flower, and then my mother said, oh, maybe she wants to paint. So instead of being a really good mother and getting me paints, <laughs> she got me a book that if I added water, the colors would come <laughs> up. <laughs> so, so it defeated the purpose. And then on your journey, who did <coughs> you meet that helped you harness those <coughs> energies? Well, I think it's a very incremental thing. You know, it doesn't just happen once suddenly, you know, all the stars and spangles happen. When I went to primary school, when we arrived in Australia in Manjimup, I started drawing one um, wet afternoon when I had the measles and I was confined to my bed. My mother gave me this book to copy from because I said, Mom, I'm bored, I want to draw. So she gave me this book of, of uh, the King's Palace in Thailand because she had lots of Thai books. And so I started leafing through it and drew this, uh, these gods sitting on clouds, you know, with their hands poised. Um, and it turned out not so bad. So I was quite surprised, you know. So I carried that into my school, that, you know, pride in my work. And I did a painting which won a prize in wow. primary school. So I was about 10, 10 or 11, you know, so that thought, that thought sort of stayed in my mind, maybe I could do something in this, you know, area. After all, because I was hopeless at everything else. <laughs> <laughs> Did she get affirmations other than getting a prize? I guess people coming up and telling <coughs> you and teachers. Um, yes. I. I remember in high school being in um, an art class and that was my favorite, favorite class. She was a wonderful art teacher and she had the top floor of this old building. It was almost like an attic, you know, and we had to go up there to do our art classes. And she gave me this assignment to make my ideal room. So I sort of had to harness all sorts of material and mixed media stuff and that was you know one of the best that she told me anyway in the class and I absolutely loved it yeah I was failing in algebra failing in typing failing in account accounting but I sang in art <laughs> <laughs> 
but to to work to also decide that you're going to be an artist as a profession mm. for life. Oh yes, that's it. That's also a big <coughs> step. Yes, yes. Well, actually, that came about one day when I was when I had my first job. It was um, my mother was grooming me to be to follow in her footsteps to be um, a stenographer. Uh, so she had me take typing lessons and all that, you know, paraphernalia. Anyway, so then I got myself into a shares office where I was typing up these shares and every share I typed, there was always a typing mistake. <laughs> and in those days, you had to put this white thing on and make sure that the key fell right back on the typing mistake so that you could type over it. <laughs> And it was horrible. My dustbin was just full of scrunched, scrunched up shares. <laughs> and I tried to hide it from the guy so he wouldn't see it, you know. <laughs> anyway, I was just beside myself. How am I going to get out of this? I hate it so much. So then somebody told me there was an art school in Melbourne. So one lunchtime, I just caught the tram, went up there. I was 15 went up there and I asked to see the principal and he was quite taken aback, you know, this 15-year-old wanting to see him. So I went and sat down in the chair, felt very minuscule in his presence because he was such a huge, big man. And I asked him if I could join the school. And he said, I can't let you join. You've got to show me some artwork. Mm. I went, oh. So then I went home and I, you know, scrambled together some pieces of artwork and oh, I'm absolutely ashamed when I think of what I did, you know, these <laughs> typical sunsets and all sorts of things. And um, I brought them in and he let me join the school. So I was 16 when I joined. Was that the average age of joining the school? Or? Mm, I think 17 because a lot of students uh, went through, you know, more uh, uh, schooling, right. but I gave, I went after year nine, you know, okay. and started working. But um, yeah, so I had to do another year after that to get my diploma. Right. Yeah. What about the, um, in terms of the art itself, how did it evolve? from the point where you were just doing it <coughs> pretty much on your own mm. and now <coughs> you've got a focus art school. <coughs> Did it really change the way you painted, the way you thought? From which which point? From the point where you were about 15. Mm. So previously yes. it was always been artwork that possibly from school is very general in yes, yes, what you yes, have to that's do and right, so yes, forth. Yes. But now you're in art school. Yes. Has that, did that really oh, change anything? When I went, in, went to art school, yeah. yeah. Well, you were still, you were still given projects, um, taken on trips, you know, and um, said, here, here's a landscape, paint something. Yeah. And, um, or <coughs> here's some chickens in a pen, draw them. Um, or um, uh, we had models, you know, that we had to draw and paint. Mm -hmm. And then I did printmaking, which I really loved as well. And uh, then we had, uh, you know, various projects 
but the one thing that I hated was uh, uh, drawing with straight lines and rulers <laughs> perspective. I couldn't stand it. I, I would always get one of my friends to do my projects for me and I'd pay him. <laughs> so I would pass, you know. <laughs> I was just getting below <laughs> pass level. So I got Russell who was um, a bit smitten by me. So I said, do you want to do my project? <laughs> yes. Okay, so we were getting back to your your takeaway from being at the art school, because you were given lots of oh, medium. Yes, yes, yes. You hate certain ones, but I'm sure it exposed you to different ones as well. Mm -hmm, they did, so, yeah. so what would it be that kind of would have been your maybe a starting point to where you are today? Yes, um, I suppose I still didn't think that I was going to make art my life because my mother. My mother wanted me to be. Um, my mother wanted me to be uh, a type of artist that earned money, because she didn't think that art would bring any money at all. So she made me enroll in a course that was illustration rather than fine art, because oh, then okay. she then she could um, be rest assured that I would get a job like in an agency or something like that, working every day, getting paid, rather than in a garret, painting, uh, living on the smell of an oil rag, <laughs> <laughs> proverbial oil rag. But um, I used to go past the fine arts people and sort of wistfully, longingly look in to see what they were doing and, you know, and think, oh, why can't I be there? And had to go upstairs and draw all these ads and people smoking or <laughs> you know or eating chocolate. <laughs> you know. Yeah, so that was what uh, I didn't want to do. That you see. Yeah. So. But she was concerned. She was concerned, and I'm glad in a way because it taught me to draw. My drawing skills were honed. But then it was. I spent the next 30 or odd years or plus trying to undo uh, that teaching yeah. because it tended to make me very tight okay. in my painting, you know, and I wanted to loosen up, be like a fine artist, mm -hmm. find my style, my uniqueness, rather than fit into a illustrative box. Right. So that was my quest, and it wasn't until I left, I, I worked in a couple of agencies um, and then when I got pregnant I left and uh, um, had children and, and stayed at home and that's when I started painting when I was at home. So I think then uh, I still didn't think that I would do it as an artist, I just knew that I had to do it right. rather than do it to earn a living. You know, and even when I left, um, you know, my husband, my my marriages failed, and then I started to, you know, um, earn my money. I still went back and designed 
illustrative things because that's all I knew how to earn money to Because that was my something son. that you knew could give you <coughs> an income. Yeah. So my, my son and I lived on what I earned as a designer. What gave you your style? Because your style is very distinctive. Mm. It is now, but yeah. it, it wasn't then. I was sort of experimenting with different things. When I lived in Melbourne, I was into figurative art. My first solo big exhibition was all about figurative art. And, um, <coughs> and of course, I was you know, experimenting uh, with combining sexuality and figurative art as well, because you know, when you're younger, that's, that's what's in your mind as well. That's part of your body, uh, body's journey. And then afterwards, uh, when I was, um, you know, trying to work out how I'm going to combine a career, bringing my children up, and being happy doing what I want to do, I went into teaching. I learned, you know, teaching in a, in a college, and then I started teaching, and then I had the same holidays as my children, and then I could paint during their holidays yeah. and at night after school because you, school finishes at 3.30 so I had more time to devote to my painting. So at what point did you say, well, wow, this is me, you know, when you're doing it and you say, I've discovered it, this is where am I going to go with my flow? <coughs> I think it was uh, the first exhibition or when, when I first had my work on display, I saw other artists with their work on display and I thought, you know, they're selling their work and I could sell my work and I could make a living. I could, I could use the money and buy more paints and, you know, uh, like keep going as an artist. What was it that defined your style? Because that was the one thing that you were working towards pretty much. A very long time. Well, you see, I don't think that I've got a style that's fixed in concrete. Okay. There are just certain elements. When you see a, a spectrum of my work, you can detect that style running through it. But when you see them individually, you think they're completely different. So <coughs> I think in terms of style, uh, it's the essence of the style that runs through all of my work, even though I change the concept, I change media, and I even change uh, certain aspects of my painting technique. But still, you always fall back on uh, an individual way of uh, transposing your thoughts and creativity. Do you think those, um, the essence is something that finds you, or is it something that you find? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both, because the way that you get it is by just working, working, working. You can't sit in a chair and hope that it hits you like a thunderbolt, yeah. because it only comes from a huge number of failures, of successes, and of mediocre work. Uh, I have lots of paintings that I've tried to uh, 
get something out of, but it's, it's only there to teach me to go to the next step rather than to be a successful work. How do you know when you found the essence? What's the feeling of it? The feeling of it is when I feel that there's nothing more to be done. If I feel that oh, this corner doesn't look right or I don't think that you know that color goes well with the whole thing or there's something that I'm not happy with or that I feel that it's not satisfying, then it's not working. How do you help someone if someone's going through that journey and you've been a teacher for so many years as well to find that style and if they're unable to see it? Well, they will see it. It's just a question of putting in the yards. You've got to work and walk those miles and miles and uh, keep trying and trying and then you will get a sense of success or failure in your work. And it's not re a real type of failure, it's just a failure to reach up to the expectations that you have of your work, but it's still important because it's part of your learning process. And uh, they, will, they will arrive at it, even though they might feel despondent in the beginning but uh, that shouldn't stop them from taking risks and moving forward even though maybe the risks don't work out but if you try new media and you try new ways of expressing yourself you're bound to not succeed straight away or with everything so and it's so satisfying when you do when when I work on a painting at night and I think I've gone as far as I can I'm going to leave it and go to bed when I get up in the morning and I look at it and when I can't find a thing that I want to change it is such a wondrous experience it's almost like a like a relief mm. when an itch has been scratched <laughs> and then you're just happy <laughs> That's the bliss. Yes, bliss. How do you, I mean, nature is a very much a big part of your paintings as well, mm -hmm. or inspiration. Mm -hmm. Was it always been nature? Well, you did start with nature, with the flower, the bougainvillea. Yes, yes, that's right. Well, it was more environmental uh, that fed into my work, but the nature thing happened when I was driving from uh, Melbourne to visit my mother and father who lived in Perth. So it was a 3,000 uh, kilometer or mile, 3,000 mile drive, uh, which I made because I couldn't afford the airfare with myself and the two children. So <coughs> getting out in the desert, in the isolated spots of Australia, and I've also been in other isolated spots like in Rajasthan and um, in the Nevada desert, but this sense of overwhelming, uh, almost uh, spirituality and being close to uh, na the natural environment, the natural source of all being, and to feel alone and yet not lonely, to feel uh, as 
as if you're part of it, but you're such an infinitesimal part that it's quite awe-inspiring. And I had that sense when I traveled across and we would just see the stars, so black sky with this peppering of almost like flour being thrown on the, on the sky. And uh, silence, the silence, and you only see, hear little tiny scribblings of sound from little creatures and things like that. So that was the time of the colors, bright red of the earth or the white sand, blue sky, stars, huge moons, wondrous sunrises, and the, and the trees that were almost dead uh, because it's so burnt and um, uh, dry in the desert and they're struggling for life and I sort of made it like a, an analogy of how humans struggle for life and they you know they have um, leaves around the base where they they don't they don't waste their energy going upwards because the water allows them just to have leaves around the base so I made that analogy of the human spirit uh, being strong and uh, trying to survive in all, with all odds against them. Yeah. <laughs> so that was my first foray into landscape. And then that's when I started combining at first figurative motifs with the landscape. And then I took out the figures and I just concentrated on the landscape. What about now? You don't live in Australia. You haven't lived in Australia for a very long time. Mm -hmm. So what, where would the inspiration come from? The inspiration comes from my memory, my memories of uh, the trips that I've had in that isolate, isolated, desolate landscape in other parts of the world as well. And uh, also the spirituality in Asia is very prevalent, more prevalent than in Australia. So I feel close to the the spirituality of the environment, even though the environment is completely different. So I've become more abstracted in my representation of the landscape. And I've painted even a lot of paintings that I view from uh, a height. So it's like looking from a height down on earth rather than uh, the, you know, a personal view of the landscape up close. Why would you do that? What What's the choice for that? Um, because I think <coughs> viewing, viewing, it's like viewing life from afar. Because of the age that I am, I'm not, I find I'm not in the milieu of, you know, making decisions, living, uh, existing, fighting this this battle or that battle, I've, I've taken myself away and stand separated and I can look back at things that are happening from a distance and feel at peace with myself and what I see. Very meditative. It's it, almost it, allowing it to it exist is. and letting it go. It is. It, I feel that every painting session almost that I engage in is like a form of meditation. Because when friends ask me, don't you meditate? And I say, I meditate every day. 
you know, because it, because it is. You're, you're thinking about the colors to use and you're hearing the, the sound that the brush makes on the canvas. You're seeing the lines that you make, you're mixing paint on the palette. So your mind is in the moment. It's in your present state of mind. So you, you're not going anywhere else and it's very focused and I love that state. Do you ever feel like you don't want to paint? Um, the only time I don't want to paint, the only time I don't want to paint is either when I'm sick or when I'm too tired. Uh, and uh, because I don't even let myself paint when I'm too tired because I know that I'm going to botch it up. <laughs> right. It's almost, it's almost like an athlete doing peak performance. Mm -hmm. You need to mm -hmm. be a mental peak performance to be painting. Mm -hmm. And if I am in a in a funk, which you know, being human, you're a bit occasionally in a real funk. Something hasn't happened right in your emotive state or something like that. I spend that time preparing things, gessoing canvases, cleaning brushes, cleaning my palette, all those hideous things that I hate to do but then I get meditative about that as well because I just focus in on that I'm going to make all this really fantastic so when I'm in a good space I'll have clean brushes canvases to go you know so that's what happens okay what about commercial I mean we're seeing we touched a, a little bit on that you've been in the commercial mm -hmm. art space mm -hmm. and and the need to be artistic as well What's, what do you think is the struggle now? Because we've just seen tons and tons of artwork in the market. Oh, yes. And it's also a, a difficulty, I think, mm -hmm. to, to differentiate mm -hmm. almost. Mm -hmm. how, do you def how do people, first of all, as an artist, define themselves with it and, and at the same time able to survive? <clears throat> well, this is the dilemma, I think, of every artist because once you start selling a certain type of painting or, you know, uh, a certain way of looking at something. You think, oh, this is, a, this is a seller, you know. So you're so tempted to keep going down that path and not taking any more risks in case you don't sell other pieces. So you have to sit down and really take yourself in hand and say, do I just want to, to want to sell artwork or do I want to be authentic to my deep creative spirit you know that's because that deep creative spirit is going to give you the eternal happiness in what you're doing because I'm sure that a lot of artists who make lots of money doing certain things that they're told to or you know trying to make money are not really 100% happy in what they do. I know that if I'm working on two or three commissions that they sort of are very specific about color, size, blah, blah, blah. I'm not 100% happy, but I, I try and get it done as quickly as I can so that I can go back to what I'm doing. But every artist needs a certain percentage of pot boilers is what I call them to, um, to 
to get money to buy more materials or you know to exist and survive so unfortunately that's what we have to do sometimes but as long as it's 90% of what you're doing is what you love and 10% or 5% of, <laughs> of pot boilers that's okay that's good odds <laughs> well I mean it's kind of like thinking about it it's like people who work if that's you're right. working you might not be happy at your job, but that's that takes up pro probably 80% of mm -hmm. your time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you don't even have an outlet for yeah. it. Yeah. Mm. Well, wanted to also ask you, in terms of surviving as an artist as well, mm -hmm. fully as an artist, okay. how difficult would it be for someone today to be able to do that? Yes. It is very difficult. It is very difficult. And there's, there's uh, two or three ways that you can do it. One is to uh, get governments to help by putting in for grants and um, uh, project, you know, money for projects and uh, also competitions. I didn't realize the necessity for putting in for competitions because I was so busy uh, bringing up two children and working, surviving in my youth that I, I put that on the back burner. But now I realize that to get recognition from your peers and from panels of judges and things gives you more credibility and credence for your work and other people see that on your CV and it's very very important <coughs> so that's one way and another way is finding a cheap place to um, exist in uh, maybe a third world country where you don't have to pay much rent everything's cheap uh, and then you can you know focus in on art and not worry about trying to keep pay the rent and um, you know exist. So <laughs> that's what I've tried to do. But anyway, um, it takes a lot of determination and uh, willpower to keep going. Because determination and willpower is what you need in bucket loads to survive because you've got many detractors from every source, from every avenue. You could start off with your parents not wanting you to go down that way. You can start with friends, you know, saying, oh, you know, that's no good or laughing at what you do. You can, there's, there's detractors everywhere. So you've just got to have a skin like a crocodile and just keep at it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think artists have it easier now with social media as a tool to be able to get their voice out, the art out, without having to be validated by a gallery maybe? Very much so, very much so, yes. A lot easier. You still have to work at it, you know, you still have to have your finger on the pulse. Whereas in the olden days, uh, in the 70s and 80s, before even my mobile phones were out, 
a uh, lot of artists would be painting and painting and just putting their paintings under the bed because they didn't know how to get it out there, you know? And or they'd have to haul them in um, trucks and cars and things from gallery to gallery like I used to have to do, you know? And uh, or take pictures in picture books um, to show people. So yes, social media is a wonderful tool for artists and I'm still learning how to use it to my best advantage. And you know, there's always things to learn and as soon as you've learned something, there's something more to learn. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm never there. <laughs> well, but that's the journey of being human, I yes, guess. Yes, that's right. What about your exhibitions? What, where have you done which you think that uh, has been fantastic? You'll go back to it. And then what are the places you would love to go to? Well, at the moment, um, I think I've racked up about 38 or 42 solo exhibitions in my life. And um, uh, I'm looking forward to having an exhibition now in a place that I haven't had a solo exhibition for about three decades. <laughs> so it's going to be quite an eye-opener as to how, you know, how it turns out. But I've got people now wanting to help me, like ex-students, you know, on social media saying, oh, she was my art teacher. You know, come along, show support, <laughs> you know, all you Melbourneites. <laughs> so the next one's going to be in Melbourne? Yes, yes. When would that be? In uh, November, uh, 7th to the 23rd of November. So I'm going over there to um, meet old friends and hope some of them are still alive. <laughs> <laughs> alive and kicking and can walk in the front door. <laughs> would you do it elsewhere in Australia or just yes, Melbourne? Yes, yes. I'm looking for other um, uh, avenues now because... Uh, you know, galleries are not always, uh, you know, open. Some of them close, some of them go bankrupt, uh, some of them get amalgamated with other galleries, so you lose contact. And unless you really, you know, uh, got your, you know, self sorted, they just go off. And then suddenly you think, oh, I'm not represented in Sydney anymore. You know, so. <laughs> I've got to do something about it now. I had a gallery, two or three galleries go bankrupt on me. Right. Uh, not because of me, but because of... Well, of course, of, yeah, because uh, they do represent yes, other artists too. Yes. I mean, it's a business. Yeah, that's right. So um, you're constantly looking for representation. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, it's the worst thing in the world <coughs> to represent yourself because I've tried it, and I end up, you know, giving my work away or <laughs> selling it for so little that it's sometimes not even worth the canvas that it's painted on. Oh, wow. <coughs> so it, you're the worst person in the world to represent is yourself. Yeah. And uh, I, it's proved time and time again, so I'm looking for more representation for sure. What about Asia? I mean, you're, you've been Asia for such a long <coughs> time. Yep. Would you look to do more exhibitions here? Yes, sure. I have a gallery that represents me in Shanghai already. It's um, and an agent who's always uh, 
on the lookout to sell my pieces. And I've been in the Shanghai, uh, Shanghai Art Show uh, in November last year. And um, yes, I am looking. And I've uh, been nominated for the Sovereign um, Art Awards that's going to be held in Hong Kong. Uh, and um, yes, I, I love, I love um, Asia because Asia, I think I'm a born again Asian because <laughs> I don't feel happier anywhere else in the world than Asia. I, I even don't want to go back to Australia. <laughs> it's, well, you've been away for so long. Yes. You've been here maybe 20 years? In total, probably about, about 18 years, yeah. yeah. From my, from my birth, yeah. It's a bit difficult to leave, isn't it, when you've mm. set up roots. Mm. How was your, so other than Hong Kong and, and Shanghai, would you also look at other places in India or, you know, Singapore? Yes, I would. I was represented in Singapore, but for one reason or another, it uh, didn't work out. But um, I have had uh, shows in Singapore. In fact, I've got a private, a boutique um, gallery that I'm represented by at the moment in Singapore. But I would definitely consider everything. But you see, not having representation, you are starting off on the back foot. Because right. you've, you've got to open up the avenues. Uh, so, and that's a long process. What about Europe and the U.S.? Well, you, you're up against transportation then, you see. Transportation is just so expensive. Um, you know, you have to pay thousands to get an exhibition transported because they want to crate them up and all sorts and of things. And the insurance and so well, forth. Well, I've got, I've got a couple of pieces in the U.K. at the moment in a, in a sunny art centre in the middle of London, uh, and it cost me nearly a thousand dollars to send one painting. Yeah. You know, and uh, being an artist, how can you afford it? Yeah. You know, it's it's a real big chunk, with with no uh, commitments of sales. You know, because so you don't know whether you're going to sell them. Yeah. So, but this these two paintings, I tried to do it you know, on the um, not paying, you know, for crating and all that, and the frame got damaged. Okay. Yeah. Not so. worth it. Mm. What about copycats, given that, mm. you know, it's so easy now with social media as well, everyone can see the paintings, and, and if someone does well, I mean, you, s you see it everywhere. Yes, you do. With Van Gogh and, and all of that, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. how do you, how does a buyer know and, and how do you find out, how do you keep tabs on that? It's something that you can't keep tabs on. You just have to trust in the universe, you know, because I, I have a, a redeeming feature in my work. It's the texture. I've, I challenge anybody to replicate my texture to the same, you know, degree because only I know how I got it, and sometimes even I forget. <laughs> <laughs> That's your secret sauce. <laughs> yes. So, yes, it's a texture 
that's why if you do paintings that are very smooth, then it is easy to take a photograph and then simulate the brush strokes over the top, which is what I've seen in a lot of art fairs. They sell a painting as an original when they simulate the brush strokes with this uh, transparent gel. They put transparent gel over the whole lot and then they get a brush and they just simulate the texture of the paintbrush. How's that? That's just like carbon copy, like yes. what we used to have with, with typing <laughs> or right. writing. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's very difficult uh, not to not to well not to get too worked up about people copying your work because if they want to they will you know and you can't stop it I, I've even seen a couple of paintings that are very similar to my work but I think well they're really honoring me because they think that my work is good enough to copy yeah you know it's an honor it's like a Chanel and an LV <laughs> What's your ultimate goal? My ultimate goal is quite humble, really. It's to be able to continue to paint in a healthy, mindful state for as long as I can. It is humble. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's the ultimate goal that most people should have to to be able to live in in the best state they can because mm. mm. every day is different every day is different every day has a challenge of some sort you know and uh, if you can overcome it and still be authentic and still be mindful of yourself and other people and the environment I don't think there's a better life <laughs>